And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. You know, we're in 190-some countries, so somewhere, as they used to say about Star Trek, the sun is never setting on the other side of midnight when we're, when we're on the air, and when we're not. I'll tell you what, um, tonight is going to be a really intriguing show, and I might wind up doing a couple of things that I've been debating about for many, many, many months. Uh, we'll, we'll see how the conversation flows. But there's a lot of collateral investigation that's part of the uh, other side of midnight. Uh, I know I've been getting some emails, I want to say this parenthetically up front, from some of you folks who are not uh, totally happy with the other side of the news. Um, I want to say absolutely foremost and you know ground floor I support the First Amendment. I myself do not agree with some of the things that are said and presented on the other side of the news, but as uh, Thomas Jefferson once said, I will defend to the death their right to say it, to present evidence, to have airtime. Um, I just have, in some areas, very different views, again, backed up by a lot of research that goes on behind the scenes. Um, let me give you a little progress report. As you know, I've been looking for the right epistemologist, you know, uh, the science of how do we know what we think we know. And I think I found the right guy. Uh, he even made the cover of Time magazine not too long ago. My problem is it's like bass fishing. I'm trying to get him in the boat. <laughs> and I may not be able to do that for a couple of weeks, but we're going to do a show on how do we know what we know, because the country is really fractured uh, right, you know, kind of down the middle with half the country, other half of the country, let alone government, let alone, you know, experts, let alone officials, pundits, uh, whatever. And it's something to me which is so fascinating because, again, it goes back to the kind of mantra of the hyperdimensional physics model, which is the good are getting better and the bad are getting worse. Now, worse in this case does not mean, you know, bad. It means the, the emotional side of the human condition is rising to the fore over what the founders envisioned in terms of the U.S. Constitution the rational side. That's why we have two branches of Congress, the House and the Senate. The Senate is supposed to be the cooling rationalization saucer for quicker actions in the House. And of course, uh, how's that working out lately? Anyway, we're, we're going to grapple with all of these things as we go through an extraordinary time in human history. And to just show you how extraordinary it is, Remember when the president, President Trump, uh, suddenly realized that he had full active COVID-19 and they whisked him away to um, uh, Walter Reed by helicopter and he was in the hospital for, I guess, what, three days? And because they caught it really early, they gave him something like eight grams of a substance, again, made with modern genetic engineering called um, monoclonal antibodies. And after three days, feeling terrific, he bounded back to the White House, went up to the Truman balcony, whipped off his mask, and 
declared that he had defeated COVID-19. Well, at that time, the president said he wanted everybody who came down with this thing to get this treatment. He was so gung-ho. It turns out now it is possible. The, the um, uh, firm, Regeneron, which is one of the pharmaceutical companies together with Eli Lilly, which made this cocktail, um, it turns out to be incredibly successful. It turns out it keeps people out of the hospital. It keeps them from dying. It radically shifts the odds. So if you get it, it's not a potential death sentence given your other comorbidities. The problem was there was no supply. Now, as of last night, I've heard from official sources, there is so much supply that if you come down with COVID-19 and you don't want to go to the hospital, you don't want to certainly go on a respirator, et cetera, you call the nearest clinic and they most likely will have an out of um, uh, an outpatient treatment with this Regeneron monoclonal antibody cocktail, and you can be spared the worst symptoms, potentially even death. So this is a major breakthrough. Now, again, we're looking at doing a vaccine show. Very controversial. My um, love, Robin, was firmly anti-vaccine for the entire you know 20 years that I knew her. And there were reasons. Those reasons now have changed. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a science show based on the science of old vaccine technology versus new vaccine technology versus <clears throat> tampered vaccine technology. We're going to go through everything. But again, it, you, we have to find the right people or the right person, the right doctor, the right uh, immunologist, uh, whatever. And we're in the process of doing that kind of search. And I'm hoping in the next uh, couple, three weeks to have the right person and then get them booked. And we will we will let you know. Um, for those of you who are new to the show, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our that's our website URL. You want to click on that URL that will take you to the other side of midnight homepage. Click on tonight's banner. Is there really a global cabal with a secret disclosure agenda for 2021? With our guest tonight, Michael Hall, click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under that, there is some little light to say guest page, fast links to items. Richard, Michael, click on me. That will take you to my section of radio with pictures. We've already gone through item number one. That's the backstory on the uh, COVID-19 antibody cocktail. Very important if you want to stay out of the hospital. Number two, this gets back to something that Robin and I talked about over the years, many, many, many times. When you take a drug, when you take a therapeutic, when you take a vaccine, does it matter when you take it? And this gets into rhythms in the physics, rhythms in the torsion field of which we reverse. So item number two, this was sent to me by uh, Barbara Honiger. Turns out that a new study has shown that there is a celestial influence on human beings on planet Earth because of the moon. 
Now, for decades, researchers have been looking for correlations with the anecdotal, you know, evidence of, you know, more riots, more police arrests, more uh, public disturbances, more uh, of all kinds of stuff during a full moon. And they've not found any real correlation. This study, however, is really intriguing because, wait for it, it shows that about three days before a full moon, three days, remember the moon moves 13 degrees per day in orbit around the Earth. So about three days before a full moon and about three days before a new moon, when the moon is basically between the Earth and the sun, uh, but not causing an eclipse because it's just above or just below because of the tilt of the orbits and all that, um, there is a pronounced effect of the lunar cycle on sleep patterns. People who uh, have been monitoring this, and this is a very interesting study, obviously, needs to be followed up. People stay up later and sleep less before a full moon and do the opposite before a new moon. So there's a modulation and the bracket of that window I just gave you is 19.5. That, of course, leads to my third item. Again, you're in uh, Radio with Pictures and Richard's Items. Recently, <clears throat> the, um, the test community, the uh, follow-on to the Kepler Space Telescope, which is looking at uh, stars nearby, relatively, that are unusual in terms of transits, in terms of, you know, seeing the the little sh shadow diminution of planets crossing the point-like disk of the star, no matter how far away it is, they've now found a system which has six planets in the range from super-Earths, meaning they're just somewhat more massive than the Earth, to mini Neptunes, meaning they're, you know, a percentage of the mass of Neptune. And they're all orbiting this one K-type star, which is an older, orangish, cooler sun than our sun. And this one turns out to be about 200 light years away. So it's very bright in these telescopes. And so we're able to actually see uh, details. Hold on, hold on. I thought I was going to sneeze. It's very bad to sneeze on live air. Anyway, um, this system is so extraordinary because it turns out that these six planets are all orbiting this star slash sun in a rhythmically resonant pattern. Each planet exterior to the inward one orbits the star twice the, the number of days or hours or minutes as measured by terrestrial time. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary resonance and what's really weird, because I've seen a couple other systems that are like this, what's really weird is the astronomers, of course, who are looking at these kind of systems are trying to figure out the fingerprints of the formation process of the systems themselves. The idea being that every star starts out as a big, you know, rotating disk of gas and dust in the dark, in the galaxy, in an interstellar cloud, and condenses, and as it condenses, it spins faster. And in that large extended disk, 
as the star ignites and sends shockwaves of thermal energy and temperature through the disk from the center toward the outer edge. The temperature rises and the inner forming planets coalescing also in this disk, they lose their volatiles. So they become the rocky worlds, the silicate worlds, and the outer planets in the system uh, retain their volatiles, retain their gases, because they're far enough from the star that the light of the igniting sun does not produce a temperature shock that winds up blowing away the volatiles and leaving the naked uh, solid state planetary cores. That's the model. That's the idea. And it's been applied to this solar system, which in another show we're going to talk about why using the solar system as a kind of an average is not true, because it turns out our solar system is not average at all. Anyway, in this system, turns out that you've got dense planets exterior to light and fluffy sub-Neptune type gaseous worlds and the lineup is totally bizarre makes no sense thermodynamically makes no sense in the standard model of the formation of solar systems and the variance thereof and frankly has completely stumped the mainstream astrophysical community because it ain't supposed to be that way again according to this temperature driven planetary formation model so what's the answer well, the answer is obvious. This is a tinkered solar system. Just like, as I've said on many shows and in various writings over the years, this one, the one we're living in tonight, the one where you're listening to me. And if you have a tinkered solar system, there have to be folks that are doing the tinkering. But of course, they're not using primitive 21st century terrestrial technology they're obviously using a technology which in short circuit gravity, inertia, momentum, field effects that can move planets between star systems, literally project them across vast distances and assemble them in a system, again, which is only 200 light years away. Imagine the details of this bizarre rhythmic system that will be available to the um, uh, uh, James Webb Space Telescope when it's launched. I think it's going to be the end of this year. I, I've lost track because it's had so many, you know, potential launchings and cancellations and extensions because the technology of Webb is very, very, very difficult, mainly in the mirror unfoldment and then in the uh, sun shield. Anyway, detail, details. Uh, what is this all leading up to? Well, if you look at planet Earth tonight, we are a planet in extraordinary socio-dynamic and political and cultural turmoil. I don't think I would get an argument from anybody. Now, the argument comes in, what's the source of all this turmoil? Well, in October of 2017, President Trump held a um, dinner for the top military brass in the Pentagon, and it was a, it was wasn't a state dinner, but it was up close, you know. And then he uh, did some video afterwards, took pictures and all that. And during this kind of public, um, uh, you know, 
presentation where they were kind of all congratulating each other, he made a very bizarre comment. He said that that night, looking around the room at all his generals, he said, this is the calm before the storm. And now, for the last three years, all of his constituency, all of his followers, all of his voters, all the people that are part of QAnon and a whole bunch of other Trump, you know, associated uh, cultural phenomenon, they've all been waiting for the storm, the storm, where's the storm? They were even waiting for the storm on uh, January 6th, but I don't think that what happened is exactly what they uh, were anticipating. Anyway, I am of the belief, and again, it's a belief, it's not evidence-based, it's kind of um, anecdotal, what we see, what we look around, what we're observing in our in our culture around the world. I think that the whole COVID-19 thing, the global pandemic, was in fact the storm that Trump was referring to. And the collateral effects associated. Now, of course, some of you out there are instantly going to say, well, wait a minute, how could he have known? And I would say... Look who he was surrounded by and was their intelligence, again, in the model that I've discussed on this air with Chandra Wickrama Singh, was it possible that, in fact, the whole COVID-19 pandemic did not originate on Earth, did not originate with China, did not start in Wuhan, but, in fact, is from outer space and is part of a deliberate attack on this planet, on its culture, on its civilization by folks who do not have our best interests at heart. And I'm sure as we go through the morning with Michael, we're going to talk about various aspects of this because I noticed that one of the things that Michael wants to talk about is COVID-19. Moving on, item number five. In the midst of this, Harvard's top astronomer, the director of the um, Harvard Astronomical uh, Astrophysical Department, Astronomy Department, a position once held by Donald Menzel, whose name is going to come up tonight in, in association with the classic UFO cover-up of the 40s and 50s and 60s. Turns out that Menzel, while at Harvard, was a double agent. He also worked for the CIA, and uh, thereby hangs a very long and complicated tale, which I'm sure we'll get into some of tonight. From this same institution, in the early years of the 21st century, the follow-on to Donald Menzel, the now succeeding director of the Harvard Astrophysical Observatory and Department of Astronomy, has come out with a book which basically is built around the bizarre appearance of this interstellar visitor in 2018 called Oumuamua. And his conclusion, backed up with a lot of good data and a lot of good evidence and a lot of good reasoning based on mainstream physics, says that Oumuamua was artificial, that it was sent here by someone. And based again on his mainstream model, given that everyone out there in the astronomy community thinks the universe is random, so if something happens a lot, 
there has to be a lot of it. He is extrapolating that the solar system may be teeming with the equivalence of a Muamua, alien technology, alien visitors, alien probes, a la a guy in the 50s named uh, Bracewell, who was a professor of radio astronomy at Stanford. Anyway, we're working hard to try to get Abby Loeb, who is the astronomer I'm talking about, from Harvard with this brand new book. We're trying to get him on the show. And um, again, I will, I will tell you uh, kind of progress of what we are, how, how we're making progress on that front if and when it occurs. He is, um, he's kind of resisting. For one thing, he thinks that uh, the midnight on the East Coast is, you know, the depths of the dark hours. So if we wind up doing the show, we will not unfortunately be able to have, uh, you know, live questions from the audience. Um, we'll have to tape him. But that is certainly an important trade-off uh, against actually having Dr. Loeb on the show to be able to run a whole bunch of things by him, including the totally opposite mainstream view, namely held by me, that Amuamua was not a conventional but very large mainstream technology. It was, in fact, a very super sophisticated torsion field technology, and its anomalous behavior can be tested by Dr. Loeb himself in the physics laboratories at Harvard University, if he so chooses. So stay tuned. By the way, his book is called Oumuamua, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Boy, will that be an interesting conversation if we can make it happen and we will let you know if in fact uh, we can. And what did I do? I think I did the wrong thing. Yes, I did the wrong thing. So I want to do this, and then I want to do that. Okay, item number six. We're going to talk tonight with Michael about disclosure. And you know, based on all the stuff from Harry Reid to the Nimitz events to the Pentagon releases, to the recent uh, declassified documents by the CIA. All of this, to me and to a lot of others now who've been monitoring this for many, many years, all of this is pointing toward a major official announcement in the future. And some of us, like myself, think that it may not be that much of a distant future. In fact, we're projecting, like Steve Bassett and I in our conversation a few weeks ago, that this, this could really be breaking on or about March, spring of this year. Well, lo and behold, this is item number six. The National Broadcasting Company, NBC, one of the networks I used to uh, work for, is set to premiere in March of 2021 a new television show called Debris, which is incredibly provocative because the debris, of course, is from a crashed UFO and a combination of British and American intelligence goes to work, kind of like, you know, Mulder and Scully in the new show, 
and kind of like a cross between, you know, X-Files and Fringe to try to figure out how these fragments of this fallen spacecraft from somewhere out there is affecting the entire human race. Kind of sound familiar? Anyway, item number seven, those are the recently declassified UFO documents. We'll be talking about those with Michael. And finally, number eight, this is a surprise. A friend of mine sent this. I did not know the details, um, and I'm not going to spoil the surprise. It just is called It's Going to Be Okay, and I urge you to click on it and read to the bottom. It's a kind of illustrated comic, you know, a couple, three pages, not very long, but the punchline at the end is definitely worth the read. So, <clears throat> without further ado, I want to introduce the guest of the evening, Dr. I don't, well, yeah, technically, I guess you're a doctor if you have a doctorate of jurisprudence under your belt. Michael Hall is a lawyer. I don't want to use the term that's been applied to him, because you know I hate that term, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Michael's an attorney, a doctor of jurisprudence, and a former Superior Court Judge Pro Tem as an experienced UFO field investigator for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, in 1974, Hall is also a longtime consultant to the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, since 1995. He's the attorney of record for the National UFO Reporting Center since 1995 <clears throat> and the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomenon since 1999. He is also an experiencer and has represented such noted ufologists and researchers uh, like Grant Cameron, James Rigney, uh, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day, now retired, uh, my old friend Peter Davenport, Dr. Richard Haynes, another friend, and the initial Travis Walton alien induction scientist researcher, Dr. James Harder, who I also um, was very honored to have known. Um, disclosure is coming swiftly as part of the issue of phenomenology, including the reality of potential alien presence on Earth, and the rapidly approaching paradigm shift in consciousness, all of which is interconnected, and all of which we're going to be discussing tonight. So without further ado, we got about three minutes to the bottom of the hour. Michael, welcome to the other side of midnight. Richard, thank you so much for that sterling introduction. <laughs> I don't know if I deserve it. Thank you. Oh, I just read what's written on the paper. What the heck? <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, uh, we don't have a lot of time before the bottom of the hour, but let's let's tease people. How the heck did you get to be a lawyer in the field of ufology? Oh, yeah. You know, I came to, to the law later in life. Uh, I was 32 and I just I was tired of being fired and laid off, you know, in my other positions. So I went to law school. But I had always been interested in the paranormal, the UFOs, Bigfoot, you know, ghosts and all that kind of stuff. So it was just natural that I kind of helped pro bono a lot of my friends who are in the field uh, once I became a lawyer. Hmm. Yeah, we're 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 basically down to thirty seconds before the break. Well, I'll tell you what, let let us pick up on the other side. Um, how you kind of got into this 
in a more detailed way and um, how that led you into some very interesting pioneering work. Okay? Wonderful. Okay. As I said before, you are on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Michael Hall. We're going to be going through an awful lot of interesting stuff related to uh, disclosure, recent developments, things that are falling out of the woodwork, the idea that we're being prepped. I mean, undoubtedly we're being prepped because, again, in addition to debris over on NBC, last Wednesday on Sci-Fi, they debuted another show called Cute Resident Alien, which is about an alien who's living masquerading as a human being here on Earth. Gosh, where have we heard about that before? You don't think that something may be up, do you? You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. They are so few. They're in the thousands. We are billions. We are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology, to be able to control us. And that is where AI, 5G comes in. And then through the vaccine also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda they want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows. So enjoy. back everyone to the other side of midnight for this saturday january 30th 2021 one month is gone already where does time go anyway my guest tonight is michael hall and we're going to be discussing all kind of current aspects of the ufo phenomenon and i know there's other ways we can talk about this exopolitics and all that but in fact If all of this has been true, then the inevitable conclusion is that this phenomenon, this reality, this invisible backdrop to human civilization has got to be working on our culture even now. What are the presentations, as the doctor would say? What's the evidence? Where are we going? Is someone out there literally trying to intervene 
in terrestrial history? Is that why we're seeing in part so many turbulent, contradictory things going on simultaneously, including the really important possibility that some of the things that the Trump administration did that appears to have one aspect, in fact, has a much deeper meaning. Michael? Yes. Okay, you heard the note I left everybody on. So you were you were interested in this weird, wild, crazy stuff for a long time. Um, go through some of the things that you did to try to satisfy your curiosity. <clears throat> well, you know, initially when I was uh, very young, I would uh, I was into the comic books like everyone else. You know, I was uh, a hoarder of Superman comic books, Batman, Green Lantern. You know spent my quarter allowance every Saturday going down to uh, the local uh, co comic book shop. <clears throat> and then, of course, I got into the um, the paperbacks later on from, uh, you know, the contactees, George Van Tassel, uh, you know, um, George Adamski, and uh, kind of started reading these strange stories in the 1950s about people being uh, abducted and having experiences with Venusians you know, people from other planets that are landing out in the desert at Big Rock and those places. Um, I've always been uh, interested in that. And when people ask me, you know, did you ever have a, a traumatic experience as a child or something that started you on this path? I, I never really did. Uh, it was just always a fascination, you know, with the what if these things are true. So I just kind of went in that area. Uh, you know, and basically then uh, later on in life, uh, I got even more and more interested and I started doing the studying and, and uh, you know, joined the organizations like APRO and MUFON and, and uh, were just fascinated with realistic uh, people who are, uh, you know, um, you know, credible witnesses, uh, police officers, uh, you know, uh, doctors and lawyers and things uh, talking about the whole thing that I had read about in the comic books and and the uh, the paperbacks. And so then again, I just kept going and going and uh, literally so, later on. So hang on, hang on. Did you reach yeah. out to Jim and Coral Lorenzen? About the APRO organization, because as you well know. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. There was a hiccup. We lost the first part of that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I reached out to the APRO organization, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization based out of uh, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, these, are, these are all civilian organizations that grew up in the 50s because the government basically wasn't doing a damn thing and the Air Force was dismissing everything, right? Yeah, exactly. These were, uh, you know, the, the people that were really doing something uh, compared to the Project Blue Book things that were just kind of being swept under the rug, you know, and, um, um, you know, I was fascinated by the fact that there were civilians out there that were able to get to the details uh, of some of these amazing sighting reports. And as you well know, um, uh, that uh, Jim and Coral Lawrenson were quite, um, uh, you know, famous at that time. I mean, they were uh, literally on the forefront of uh, finding out uh, what was really going on when all of us were trying to uh, make sense of the fact that people were reporting saucers 
literally all over the uh, United States and different parts of the planet. So that was fascinating to me. I just, you know, went through the program and became a fuel investigator. Um, uh, didn't do a whole lot of stuff because I was all also in college at the time, but it sure got my foot foot wet, you know, when it came to the reality of the situation. So um, I, I want to give people a kind of a feeling for what that era was. What were some of the stories being reported? And do you happen to know why Jim and Coral got into it themselves? You know, uh, you might even have that uh, detail more than I do. I don't know why they got specifically in, in, involved, but I do know during that period of time was the um, the Travis Walton Ah, uh, yes, yes. And, of course, uh, that was a major um, <laughs> conundrum at the time because, you know, up to that point, there had been a lot of different stories. Uh, of course, there had been uh, Barney and Betty Hill in the 60s, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, uh, lots of different books and uh, written about potential abductees. But then all of a sudden, the fact that we've got uh, this uh, Arizona woodcutter, Travis Walton, missing for five whole days. You might uh, want to go over briefly what that story is, because it's so remarkable. And I've got a little little piece of data to tag on after you give people the background. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was just... Uh, it is the most fascinating um, uh, UFO abduction story of all time, as far as I'm concerned. The idea that uh, Travis Walton and uh, seven or six of his uh, his friends were out woodcutting in the Sitgreaves National Forest up well, there. Well, these were they, they were professional loggers, right? Yeah, you got it. They're young young kids. They're like uh, in their twenties, uh, but they're put together by a uh, crew. Uh, um, uh, that's uh, working on a contract for the uh, you know the federal government there, and and they're thinning out some old growth trees in the Sitgreaves National Forest one uh, one evening in the winter uh, down there in Arizona, ne- next to Snowflake, Arizona. By the way, I never knew there was a place, but there is. It's a small little Mormon town, uh, and most of these guys were living there at the time. They grew up in that area. And uh, they're coming around the corner at the end of the evening. It's all dark, and they're getting ready to go home. They've been working all day long. And there's a major uh, light that they're seeing from the forest uh, coming around a sharp curve. And So little- they're basically in their four-wheel, and they're bump- bouncing down this mountain road from where they've been doing a logging yeah. in the National Forest, and they suddenly see a bright light in front of them on the road. Yeah, off to the right-hand side uh, and obscured by the trees is this massive glow. They're thinking initially might be a forest fire. Of course, yeah. They stopped, the, they stopped their truck. There were seven of these guys jammed into this large international pickup truck, four in the back, three in the front. And Travis Walton just happens to be on the uh, passenger side door uh, in the front. And as soon as it stops, he jumps out of the vehicle for some god awful reason and starts running up into the woods to this uh, bright object. Oh, my. And everyone freaks out. And of course, <laughs> it starts rising up out of the slash pile that it was hovering over. And literally, they see a saucer shaped object that's massive in size, glowing. And they think that uh, Travis and all of them are going to be uh, immediately killed by whatever this thing is. What year was this again? Uh, this was 1975. Ah. 
Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, well in advance of any of these major um, abduction stories other than uh, Barney and Bailey. Betty, Betty and Barney Hill, yeah. yeah. 1963, yeah. So um, all of these guys are yelling at Travis to get back into the car. Um, he now thinks it's a bad idea that he ran out of the car, <laughs> the truck, and uh, raises up from behind a slash pile that he was hiding from to get ready to run back to the uh, truck. And all of a sudden, Zappy gets hit in the chest with a blue beam, like a laser jet. Oh kind of a light. And literally, they say, lift him off and, the ground. And the guys in the truck are all seeing this uh, like 100 feet away or so. Exactly. Probably even closer than that. Oh Maybe my. 50 feet away from what I gather from the road there. Wow. They all think he's dead. He literally flies. So wait, wait, wait. He, he rises up. This blue beam comes out of the saucer, hits him, and then he levitates into the air with the yes. beam on him. And literally hits the ground like a sack of dirt, and they think he's dead. Oh. Uh, literally, they're all, all six of them see this. Uh, and of course, uh, um, uh, Mike, the uh, crew chief, just hit this accelerator and just took off down the road, uh, literally to get get out of there and to save themselves as well. So, um, about a few a few uh, minutes down the road, they all gather their their resources and think, "Oh my God, what, what, what did we do? We just left Travis Walton, our buddy, back there." Uh, well, Mike, they thought he was dead. I mean. That's How many right. times do you encounter being hit by a blue beam and living through it? <laughs> Let alone coming from some kind of a spaceship, you know, yep. literally. They were freaked out. Mike Rogers uh, says, uh, I'm going back. You guys can stay here if you want. And they said, no, no we're not staying here. Was, so Mike, was, was Mike the leader of the team? Yeah, Mike was the, uh, the oldest guy, but he was only about 25 at the time. Oh, wow. uh, and he was the, uh, the guy who was in charge of the contract for... Uh, the Forest Service. Yeah. They get back there and Travis is gone. No uh, trace at all that he was uh, even there. You know, no uh, no scuffle, no blood, uh, nothing. And no saucer. And no saucer, exactly. Uh, they can't believe what just they They end up going back into town. So wait, wait. Uh, when he's gone, obviously, they're now thinking he's alive. He's stumbling around in the forest, dazed, maybe with amnesia. Uh, obviously, why didn't they initiate a search right that that night? Well, well, they did. Uh, you know, with with whatever little resources they had, they tried to find out if there's any footprints. Uh, you know, somebody dragging themselves off into the woods. They they did a a cursory search and couldn't find a thing that would show that he was still, you know, in the area. Mm. And they they are panicking, as you well can imagine. Uh, seven guys having different personalities. Some of them uh, very religious, by the way. Oh. Uh, and some of them, you know, kind of sketchy as far as their uh, criminal background. They're all having to deal with each other in what to do next. And of course, they're they're, they're all freelance contractors. Pick up a federal contract. Yeah, you, you know, you all seen these television shows with a whole bunch of people with major diverse backgrounds yeah and they're all having to uh you know make uh, uh, giant decisions of their lifetime within a span of a few moments and then mike rogers decides we're going to go back to town we're going to report this and uh get some help you know that kind of thing so they they, they do that 
Uh, of course, the sheriff, the local sheriff, is just can't believe their story. They literally tell him that there was a flying saucer that hit Travis Walton and seems to have abducted him, and he's not believing any of this, of course. <clears throat> and uh, literally, they go out uh, even that evening with more uh, um, deputies to try to find any sign of Travis. Couldn't find that. They come back over the next ensuing a five-day period with a massive uh, group of dogs and uh, horses and, uh, you know, aerial assault and everything to try to find him and do not find anything for five days. Mm. Of course, there are in the interim there some uh, light. What time of year was it again? This was in November. This was kind of, of course, it's November in Arizona, but it's still cold. I was going to say you're up high and it's cold, really cold. Uh, and uh, literally, they are uh, getting uh, heat from around the world. This was all of, all of a sudden, uh, you know, press from Japan and Russia, and everyone was descending upon little snowflake Arizona <laughs> with all of these strange stories. And, of course, uh, lie detector tests are being taken and literally passed by these six guys who saw supposedly something happen. So so did the sheriff think that they maybe had murdered him or he died in some horrible accident, tree fell on him, that kind of thing, and they were just trying to, you know, put out a cover story to get out from responsibility for what happened? Exactly. That's exactly what uh, the sheriff thought. And, uh, uh, of course... uh, uh, in in the movie, they kind of conglomerate. Oh, please don't bring up the movie. Ah! <laughs> but, oh uh, my God! I, Talk about the bastardization of a of a really good story. I um, uh, knew Tracy Torme back in those days. He's Mel Torme's son. He did this yeah. this the script. He told me personally they completely violated his contract and rewrote the script and put in all that stupid, absurd stuff. I'll bet. Yeah. And, of course, uh, you know, Travis uh, Walton kind of, you know, was disgusted with that as well and has come up with some pretty good uh, documentaries since then to kind of set the record straight. But, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating story, just the basic storyline that uh, literally people passed lie detector tests uh, confirming the basic idea that uh, he was missing. When now, when, so- when 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 the, the six guys were given the lie detector tests, <clears throat> which I presume were official under the sheriff's department, that kind of thing, when they all passed, did they do the tests again? Get a different polygraph uh, operator? That kind of. In other words, it was so unbelievable that six guys could hold their story even under a lie detector technology. That what did the sheriff do? He must have been between a, you know, rock and a hard place. Well, he was, because in reality, this was uh, probably the premier uh, lie detector, um, um, uh, you know, person at the time. His name was Cy Gilson. And he was literally like, you know, one of the state uh, federally trained kind of guys that was just happened to be in the area. And when uh, they picked him to bring uh, bring him in for this uh, lie detector battery, uh, they were they were totally convinced that probably he's going to find out very quickly what the heck happened uh, on this thing. I don't know that they did multiple lie detector tests with other uh, operators uh, during that five-day or week period 
because Cy Gilson was such a well-respected, uh, you know, a graph, a graphic uh, person at the time. So, right. um, yeah, they took his, uh, he, he was basically saying that, uh, you know, one of these guys um, uh, was, you know, had some criminal background there and stuff was a little sketchy on his things, but none of them, uh, he could find were uh, trying to cover up the truth, and all of them seemed to be very consistent. But the real kicker, Richard, was just when all of a sudden, out of the blue, on the fifth day, uh, there is a phone call coming from a f- weird little phone booth uh, outside of Heber, Arizona, claiming to be Travis Walton calling his brother-in-law. Collect. <laughs> And back in those days, Travis, I've spoken with Travis about this in various conferences that I've met him at. And he says, you know, back in those days, you could literally go to a phone booth and get the operator. And you didn't even need any money. You know, you just talk to the, the yeah, operator yeah. And, and get a uh, make a uh, uh, collect call. And he did that to his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law almost hung up on him. You, you could do you could do station to station. That meant you just called the number. Or yeah. you could do person-to-person collect, or you would say reverse the charges. Yeah. And then yeah. the person at the other end would either accept or not. So his brother thought he was being lied to by some total stranger. Well, this was his brother-in-law. So, oh, okay. Uh, and, and the reason was his brother-in-law lived closer to this town that he, Travis, knew he was in now, this Heber, uh, Arizona. He called him first because he figured his brother-in-law could pick him up faster than anybody else uh, and literally came out and got him and found him uh, literally just sunken down into this phone booth. Uh, and, of course, uh, they hooked him up with his own brother, Dwayne, uh, Travis's brother, uh, who kind of kept him from the the press for a few days because Travis was in no, um, in no uh, you know, uh, shape to even talk with the press. What was, at that point. Uh, what was his condition, both mental and more important, physical? The strangest thing about it was that Travis thought that he had been gone for about uh, half an hour, you know, short oh period my of time. God. And his brother told him, Travis, feel your face. You've got a full week of beard on your face. And that really freaked him out, obviously, <laughs> at that point. And, uh, of course, you know, at one point, they literally uh, got a hold of uh, some uh, medical advice, and they did, uh, they did find out he was quite dehydrated. Um, you know, uh, he had, uh, had low electrolytes, you know, whatever you would think probably would happen to a person who is, uh, you know, not eating or drinking for a period of time, but literally was in uh, remarkable shape for someone who had been missing and didn't recall what had happened to him for the last five days. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating story. Some other things and details have come out since then. Uh, when he uh, literally relates to being upon, aboard the craft for a period of time, waking up and seeing small gray aliens around him uh, in some kind of a hospital or uh, setting it uh, aboard the craft. And, mm-hmm. um, and also, he even saw some uh, humanoid uh, uh, people on the craft that looked just like human beings uh, for some reason in spacesuits uh, with helmets on that he uh, 
took to being there to rescue him at the time um, that ended up kind of uh, not rescuing him, but uh, uh, knocking him out with some gas. And uh, then five days later, he wakes up on the road in uh, Heber, Nevada, Heber, Arizona. With no other memories of what happened on the ship. Yeah, uh, which is really strange. You would think that with some kind of hypnosis or regression, he could have remembered the rest of the five days aboard. Well, not if he was unconscious. Exactly. That's very possible. And one of the re- one of the things that Travis is thinking even nowadays as he's reflecting back is that maybe he was so injured during this uh, time of this uh, blue ray uh, hitting him that he literally died and it took him that long to try to fix oh. whatever happened to his uh, his oh body oh my god that's one of his theories what anyway. an interesting idea so yeah. so that someone you tell me who did try because this story became you know international it was huge someone did try hypnotic regression with him what happened um, yeah, it, it was. It's my understanding uh, that um, uh, James Harder was. It, was I was going to say was, was it Jim Harder? It was my understanding he was the first uh, uh, actual investigator to get a hold of Travis after uh, his event. You know, there were some uh, scam artists that were trying to get a hold of uh, Dwayne um, Walton to get to his to his brother and that kind of thing. And I think they finally hooked up with James Harder. Uh, our our mutual friend back in the old days from APRO. And uh, he was the the head scientist at the time for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. I I think he literally did try to... Uh, uh, yeah, he, he was also a tenured professor at, uh, in, uh, in Berkeley. Of course, yeah. Um, and quite uh, an accomplished uh, uh, therapist. I, I, yeah, exactly. Professor of engineering, but his avocation, his side avocation was hypnosis he tried many 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 years later to hypnotize me that's a very weird story we won't go into that tonight but so (laughs) he he was their resident expert both in terms of the science the engineering of of the of the craft if he could get details as well as how to get into walton's head to maybe extract information that he didn't consciously remember yes exactly um, and uh, though I was able to uh, uh, get to know um, uh, James pretty well, and uh, you know, after that event, I, I still was never able to understand if he did get any information from Travis during those initial, you know, regression uh, stories. I've never heard Travis talk about any details other than what he's always said that he remembered consciously waking up abo- aboard the craft. Hmm. I wonder if the folks in the craft, and we're talking now the human guys who are in collusion with the gray guys, obviously, if they realized that if they didn't put him under, um, he'd remember and they didn't had things they didn't want him to remember, a la Betty and Barney Hill. So they just knocked him out. Well, it sure seems like that. Um Richard, because the idea being, as soon as the um, uh, Travis saw these, uh, this gentleman that came into one of the rooms and he thought he was being rescued, he followed him into a larger hangar area of this, this ship, which he had no idea that he was maybe docked somewhere else other than inside the ship. And uh, they literally brought him into a lounge area 
and uh, kind of strong-armed him and put a uh, uh, like an anesthetic uh, kind of uh, cup over his his face, and he passed out immediately. So obviously, they had some concern about him uh, still being walking around conscious. I guess, yeah, mm. fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So this was kind of your real up close and personal intro to not only the idea of UFOs, you know, lights in the sky, weird things splitting around, but something which literally could, I hate this term, abduct a human being and return him. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, we had all been shocked, I think, with Barney and Betty Hill's story. The fact that it was in Life magazine, you know, big articles, and it was all over the place. But there was no real proof other than just, uh, you know, the story. And then all of a sudden, we've got uh, these uh, these things coming out of the Travis Walton affair about 10 years after that, that literally sh- kind of st- really show us that maybe there's something to this stuff, you know. It's fascinating the fact that we've got some proof now, or at least some evidence. Let's put it that way. When you're talking about, you know, uh, a court of law being able to present something beyond a, a reasonable doubt or, you know, beyond a preponderance of the evidence, depending on the, uh, uh, you know, the standard of care and, and what you have to present. These are things you can present at, as evidence in a court of law. And I thought that was fascinating. The thing that always intrigued me, there, there were two parts <clears throat> to the Walton story that intrigued me. And remember, I don't do UFOs, so, you know, because I realized early on that, you know, the the landscape in ufology does not stand still. (laughs) Oh, my God, does it not stand still. But the two things that really grabbed me about uh, Travis before I met him was, one, his physical condition. I know from personal experience you cannot wander around uh, Arizona at that altitude in in winter, and basically have almost no you know external application of you know frostbite or you know severe dehydration, sunburn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, aside from being you know a little dehydrated, he was just like he'd been spending the night now you know or the week in a hotel room somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Um... It, that's very remarkable. Well, that was to me at the time what told me that there was a lot more to this story. Tell you what, we're at the uh, top of the hour, so why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning is uh, Michael Hall. We're going through one ancient case, ancient 1974, of ufology, because it's the background, the foundation for the idea of humans and aliens working together and neither being alone. We'll get back to Michael in a moment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Fasten your seatbelt because there are even weirder things to come. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done.
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.